welcome back, guys, to MedHub. If I sound a bit weird, our lovely and kind-hearted editor, Ali, just shouted at us for how much random shit we talk about before we start our podcast and how she has to listen to the first half an hour to work out when it starts. So, anyway, <laughs> I'm Caitlin. I'm Michael. And I'm Aaron. Um, so, today we're talking about gallstones or cholecystitis. Well, not really. I've already made a mistake. Fuck. Today, today we are talking about gallstones and cholecystitis and everything because it's all a bit complicated. That yes. Was, that was not a mistake, Caitlin. It, no, it was right. a mistake because gallstones is cholelithiasis. Inflammation oh, yeah. of the gallbladder is cholecystitis. You're learning already. Okay. But then you're just repeating yourself. You say gallstones and cholelithiasis. You're just saying the same thing twice. Yeah, but I said gallstones is cholecystitis, which is wrong. Gallstones are cholelithiasis. So in yeah. summary, cholelithiasis <laughs> equals gallstones, cholecystitis equals inflammation of the gallbladder. And we'll get into that a bit more later. But first, I think we're starting with a case. So on your shift as a junior doctor, you were taking a quick snack break when you would get asked to take a look at a patient with fever and right upper quadrant pain. All right, so right upper quadrant pain, talking about the abdomen here. So can we generate like a couple of differentials, like taking more of an anatomical approach to fever with mainly right upper quadrant pain? I think um, if I'm like, normally when I start to think about abdominal pain, rather than focusing down into that right quadrant, I start to think about foregut, midgut, hindgut. Mm. So I think more about that upper level, that epigastric pain. And then I start to think about all of the structures in the foregut, foregut that can correspond to pain being there. So for thinking foregut, obviously that's everything proximal to the um, major duodenal papilla. So that's our stomach, could be upper quadrant pain. That's our gallbladder, our pancreas, our liver. Um, what else am I missing? Duodenum. Duodenum, yeah, as well. Um so I guess all the like the big factors for those things could be like an ulcer of some kind, um, either in the duodenum or the stomach. Um, you could be dealing with a gallstone, cholecystitis, that's painful, and it's on the right side as well. Hepatitis can sometimes be a bit painful, and yeah, pancreatitis as well. Yeah, for sure. Aaron, can you think of some more maybe serious conditions we might be thinking about? Yeah, so... I guess the big thing we've got to rule out is a, a myocardial infarction. You can have that atypical presentation of an inferior wall, STEMI. Um, I'd also be concerned, particularly in female patients, of a, a ruptured ectopic. They can present in many weird and wonderful ways. Um, and any trauma also has to be excluded. Um, and also I think something that Michael didn't quite mention was the renal causes, such as a, a, a kidney stone or a pyelonephritis or even a, yeah. a renal um, neoplasm. I guess more commonly mm. that would be more flank rather than upper quadrant, but it could still be around there. Makes sense. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. But I guess like as long as you've got in mind what organs are, yeah, the general organ systems we're thinking about. So we're thinking maybe biliary, hepatic, gastric, Maybe also we didn't mention pulmonary. It could be a right lower lobe pneumonia potentially. Um, maybe the pancreas, maybe like kidneys. Um, Got to rule out that ruptured ectopic and that MI. I think another like important thing here with anyone, anyone presenting with abdominal pain, you want to think about whether they could be peritonitic or not. 
So mm. just, you know, check for your rebound tenderness, check how sick they are, because a lot of those conditions we've just listed can also progress on to being, um, yeah, peritonitis. Yeah, for sure. Um, so I guess we kind of briefly mentioned before, Michael, the whole gallstones and cholecystitis. So do you guys want to take me through the pathophysiology? Um, no. Maybe just thinking, starting with the normal pathophys, normal physiology. Aaron will take us through the physiology <laughs> of the gallbladder. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so remember the gallbladder is that little pouch that's sort of attached to that uh, more inferior margin of the liver. Um, often green, if you ever see it, due to the bile. Um, and that's its main function, is to store and to concentrate the bile and then it releases it when we need a large dose of bile, such as when we have a meal. So I guess what is bile? And it's just this wonderful group of watery enzymes. Um, includes things like cholesterol, protein, um, bilirubin, um, bicarbonate, bile, acid, salts, and phospholipids. And all of these things come together to help us digest our food um, when we eat it. I think if I could just add a quick comment is that a lot of those like, well, some of those like components of bile can also be really affected by a lot of systemic causes because it's part of that biliary excretion pathway. And when you're looking at, you know, stuff like hemolysis um, and also other conditions that can throw up your bilirubin or change the conjugation of that bilirubin, that can manifest itself as dysfunction in the bile or the way it works. Um, yeah, that was the only one actually that I thought was important. Yeah. Mm. yeah. And then I guess we've got to consider where does bile come from? So even though it's stored in the gallbladder, it's made in the liver. So from the liver, we come down through our left and right hepatic ducts and they'll come together to form our common hepatic duct. And this will eventually meet with the cystic duct. And so the bile will go up the cystic duct to the gallbladder where it's stored. And then when it's ready to be excreted uh, into the gastrointestinal tract, then the gallbladder will squeeze it out back down through the cystic duct um, and into the common bile duct. And then from there, it'll meet up with the pancreatic juices and eventually flow through the major uh, duodenal papilla that Michael mentioned before into that second part of the duodenum. Awesome. And then... We've got it helping to digest fat, it like emulsifies, oh my gosh, emulsifies and solubilizes. Um, so yeah, awesome. So now we're thinking about, okay, we've got in cholecystitis, we mo most often have a stone in the gallbladder. So how do we get a stone in the gallbladder? I think pretty much nearly all stones you'll ever come across are made of cholesterol. So from the most like simple standpoint, or a simple way of looking at it, as soon as that cholesterol isn't able to become soluble, it's going to precipitate out as a stone. Um, and there's a range of reasons that can happen. First one is supersaturation. So if you just have way too much cholesterol, um, or it can also happen because you have a decrease in the actual acidity of the bile, which that can have its own causes, or a decrease in lecithin, which is an enzyme that is there to make cholesterol soluble. Yeah, it's one of those phospholipids that's pretty important um, in making it soluble. Yeah, and and like for anything too, if you're thinking about, if you think about this like it's a little clot of cholesterol, then stasis obviously is going to contribute to that. So if you've got biliary dyskinesia, which is where your gallbladder just stops being able to move properly and doesn't respond as well to cholecystokinin, you can get stasis of the bile. You imagine, you know, it's like you've left some old, like, 
milk out. It's going to start <laughs> getting a bit clumpy. That's what happens to the bile as well. Um, yeah. And then you've got some other weird causes. So if you have something called a, a black stone, that's generally hemolytic. That's what we were talking about earlier. You get too much unconjug- too much conjugated bilirubin, um, which then is going to precipitate out in the bile, cause a stone, or brown stones, which generally have some weird and wonderful infectious causes. Yeah. <clears throat> so now that we've got our stone, I'll quickly run through how we might actually get cholecystitis. So say you've got the stone existing in your gallbladder and then you eat a fatty meal, you trigger the release of CCK by the pancreas, which like makes the gallbladder contract because it wants to push that bile out to help digest that fatty meal. And the stone is pushed into the cystic duct and often gets trapped there. And so it obstructs the cystic duct. And then this results in this whole inflammatory process. So you're going to have like um, that obstruction as well as like a little bit of trauma often the stone can cause and that results in the release of inflammatory mediators such as phospholipase A2 um, and that's important probably getting too much in the pathophys here so ignore this if you want but phospholipase A2 catalyzes lysolithicin which is an irritant from lysithin so it kind of like makes that little phospholipid um, be turned into this irritant that further irritates gallbladder you can also have like bacterial overgrowth but that doesn't always have to occur um and then you also have this whole build-up of pressure behind the blockage which leads to distension of the gallbladder um and perhaps thickening of the wall and fibrosis and then of course the gallbladder's blood supply can't keep up with this like distension and so that could also potentially result in some ischemia um so yeah that's how we get cholecystitis, inflammation of the gallbladder. But not always is it caused by a stone. Sometimes you can get a calculus cholecystitis. Um, so that's when you don't have a stone, but you still get this inflammation of the gallbladder. And it's usually in critically ill people or people that are in hospital. And it happens for a variety of reasons, um, mainly due to ischemia or gallbladder stasis. And it often occurs in immunocompromised people who have uh, diseases such as CMV or cryptosporidium. Yeah. Awesome. So we, but you've always got to remember that, yeah, it's while there's those other causes, like over like 90% of the time, it's gallstones that cause cholecystitis. Um, All right, so we can jump back to the case now. Um, And as I'm reading this, maybe think about some risk factors. So you walk into the ED and you have a chat with Faith, a 40-year-old female complaining of abdominal pain, pointing to her right upper quadrant. You try to get a bit more information, but she starts chatting about her three kids and how they have recently discovered the game Capture the Flag and are now running around the house like maniacs. So from that there, can you guys see any risk factors? She is a 40-year-old female who is probably still fertile. Yeah, awesome. So the, like, I guess slightly crude mnemonic of remembering some of the risk factors for um, cholecystitis is fat, fertile, female 40. Um, so made the name Faith to match the theme there too. Um, and I guess you can think about that as, like, fat generally people with um will have like higher cholesterol which leads to that super saturation um fertile and female is to do with estrogen so 
probably again getting too much into the pathophys but when you have too much estrogen um you have like more hdl synthesis synthesis more ldl uptake by the liver and more hmg coa reductase which and these kind of increase cholesterol synthesis and cholesterol transport which all results in more cholesterol in the gallbladder kind of shows there's a trade-off for everything though i because yeah. when, you're, when you're at that high estrogen state, because you've got that high HDL synthesis and the LDL is being packaged out of your body into the biliary system, you're at lower risk of cardiovascular disease, stuff like that. But then, you know, as soon as you switch, like that obviously the trade-off to that is that more of the LDL goes into your gallbladder, you're more at risk of getting a gallstone. Yeah, for sure. Like I, you hear like, oh, high HDL synthesis. Yeah. And you're like, that's a good thing, isn't it? Like it takes away the fat, but guess what? It takes it to the yeah. gallbladder. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, definitely a trade-off. And then, never, <laughs> <laughs> never. Um, and then 40 so 40 basically just means like with age so when it tends to just there's obviously multiple mechanisms here but like generally think older your gallbladder is a bit more lazy maybe you have that dyskinesia that lets that biostasis happen yeah all right so remembering fat, fertile, female 40, we'll move on to a bit more of the case. So Faith better describes her right upper quadrant pain. She says it started after her work lunch yesterday. They had a pizza party. She wasn't too worried as it felt as she'd felt this pain after meals before. It would usually go away after an hour or two, but this time it was worse, disrupting her sleep last night. This morning when it still wasn't better and she had started to feel a bit hot, um and then also noticed that just behind her shoulder blade hurt um she decided to come in so what do you guys think of that can you identify some symptoms or clinical features well she talks about this right upper quadrant pain and it was just after she had some food um so it seems to be correlated a bit to the meals just after her meals i will just add that not all pizza is necessarily fatty if pizza is made properly, it should not be fatty. <laughs> that is true. But the I'm Italian gonna... might be a reminder that we're in Australia where the pizza party was probably from Domino's. Probably, it's, a probably, it's a work party. I don't think they're like paying for fancy proper Italian pizza. <laughs> and the other thing that really stands out um, in the case is that her shoulder blade hurts. Um, so we've got some pain that radiates to her shoulder and she's started to feel a bit hot this morning. So maybe she's got a fever. It's normally the right shoulder, isn't it, for cholecystitis? Yeah. 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 I think another another thing I've heard really commonly as well is it's not always right upper quadrant pain. Sometimes it's like band-like epigastric pain. Mm. So they'll feel it kind of like stretching out like a rubber band just around their like up top of their tummy, which can also be a common way to present. Okay. Yeah. And sometimes also don't always think shoulder because it's, um, you can just think like sometimes it's just to the back as well. They might just say, oh, it's radiating to my back. But I do say for exams, like shoulder pain is like a little bit like, oh, it might be cholecystitis. That's part of the thing as well. If they're saying kind of abdo pain radiating to the back, you'd start to worry about pancreatitis as well. Yeah. No, we definitely are still worried about it. It's after a meal. Pancreas is also stimulated after a meal. So I guess in terms of our differentials, we're still thinking that. I guess we can hear go, hmm, like more pneumonia and renal stuff starts to go down a bit more, but we still have our liver, pancreas, biliary system thinking about a bit. And if we're thinking more, I guess, multiple choice world, you mentioned pancreatitis radiates to the back. Do you know the difference between the radiation of pancreatitis versus a biliary colic such as this? Like biliary colic comes and goes? 
Yeah, that too. And also where it radiates. So typically, like we mentioned, biliary colic goes to the shoulder, whereas the middle of the back would be more of a pancreatitis. Okay, awesome. Um, So I guess just to go over the clinical features of cholecystitis, just one more time, we've got right upper quadrant pain, and typically that lasts for greater than six hours. Um, Then we have back, specifically right shoulder pain, is where it radiates to, fever, perhaps some nausea, vomiting, tachycardia. Um, <clears throat> and then we can progress to exam findings. So what would we do on exam first? Pretty obvious Just one. a Murphy sign. <laughs> Just the Murphy sign? Murphy sign and rebound tenderness and then walk away. <laughs> <laughs> well, those are where our main findings are though. But yeah, yeah. we're just doing an abdo exam. And so we're going to find the right upper quadrant tenderness with guarding and rigidity. We'll also might find a palpable gallbladder. And then the most important one, Murphy sign. What's Murphy's sign? So Murphy's sign is where you're palpating sort of in the mid-clavicular line, more on the right side, just below the liver, and you're moving upwards, and when the patient breathes in, they suddenly stop breathing in, and they retract in pain. And that's pretty sensitive for gallbladder inflammation. Nice. Um, My ridiculous way of remembering this, (laughs) and it's very stupid, is if I think of like someone who had like a lot of beer, so a lot of Dan Murphy drinks, (laughs) and then they're like, oh, my stomach hurts or something, and they might actually just kind of grab where their gallbladder is. (laughs) It's really not specific, but I think of specifically like a fat guy who loves beers doing that, and then the fat in my head makes me go, gallbladder. I don't know. It's very bad, but yeah. The Murphy sign was the first ever positive finding I had on a clinical exam. Ooh, exciting. <laughs> it was on me as well. <laughs> yeah, it was on uh, Michael. So they did like a full workup for me and then they didn't find anything. So that was a rare false positive, I guess. <laughs> yeah, well, Murphy's sign is very sensitive, but actually not that specific, apparently. There you go. <laughs> there you go. Yes. All right, so... I guess, but the main symptoms here, because I listed a lot, just if you're thinking right upper quadrant pain and fever, you've always got to have gallbladder as a differential. So, yeah. And if you've got positive Murphy sign, you're thinking cholecystitis or inflammation of the gallbladder. All right. So we've talked, I guess, about cholecystitis, but there's a lot more that can happen with like a stone. Um do we want to go through more specific gallbladder differentials and kind of like rating the scale of severity? So if we have just a gallstone existing in the gallbladder, what's that called, first of all? I thought it was cholelithiasis, but it's not. It is. Well, gallstone is cholelithiasis, yeah. and then a gallstone in the gallbladder is sometimes called cholecystolithiasis. Um, so fun, many words. So I guess... That makes sense because choly... Lithiasis, like if you think about the Latin cholecyst, I'm pretty sure is gallbladder. Yeah. Somehow, and then because cholecystitis is inflammation of the gallbladder, whereas cholelithiasis is just referencing that region and lithiasis yeah. being stone. Yeah, for sure. So actually, if you think of it, choly, think of choly as cholesterol, yeah. and cyst as like a little sac, yeah, like a that cyst. Makes sense. So it's mm. the the sac cyst for the choly, the cholesterol, cholecyst, and then we have cholecystitis like inflammation the itis on the end is inflammation or we can have cholecystolithiasis with lithiasis being the stone 
Um, awesome. So what about if it's actually causing you a bit of pain? So say your gallbladder is contracting and the stone goes up and kind of hits the cystic duct and then like come the, but comes back down later. It's kind of chill. It hasn't actually blocked it. What's that called? Biliary colic. Mm-hmm. And how long would that pain typically last? Generally under six hours. Yeah. Mm. I think, it, yeah, that's probably just an important distinction to kind of have in your mind that I really always think about it like that. It's like after a meal, you've just had something to eat, your gallbladder's contracted, shoved the stone up, blocked the cystic duct, giving you a bit of pain, but then if it drops off, you don't get that full cycle of mm. ischemia or inflammation like we were talking about with cholecystitis. Yeah. yeah, and we're definitely not progressing to Faith's level where she couldn't sleep all night. It's been more than six hours and now she's got a bit of fever. So, yeah. All right, and then we have the next level of severity, I guess, is what face, which, um, oh my God, spoilers, ignore that. Cholecystitis is the next level, which is inflammation of the gallbladder. Um, and again, not necessarily a stone, but just commonly a stone. Um, and then what's cholecystitis? So that's when the gallstone drops down to that common bile duct we were talking about before. Um, and if it's uncomplicated, it presents like a, another condition we'll go through in a second, acute cholangitis. Um, but if it's complicated, because it's in that common bile duct, it can cause um, back up all the way to the pancreas and can cause some pancreatitis. Awesome. All right. So next we have acute cholangitis, also known in the past as ascending cholangitis. So generally this is like kind of a syndrome that's characterized by the jaundice, abdominal pain and fever um, that develops as a result of infection in the biliary tract or some inflammation. Um, So what these three, I guess, things that make up the syndrome are called is often referred to as Charcot's triad. So again, that's pain, fever and jaundice. And it kind of makes sense. Like you think you've got some inflammation in your gallbladder, you're going to have pain, you're getting this more widespread effect of it, you're getting fever and you're blocking the pathway of bilirubin, which tends to give you jaundice. Um, so kind of makes a nice amount of sense. Um, and then I guess like it can co- progress, I guess you think of it as a little bit worse, is a new, a new kind of pentad now. We call it Reynolds pentad. Um, and that one is the same as Charcot's triad with two things added. So it's the pain, fever, and jaundice. And then added, you have hypotension and altered mental status. So, yeah, we're getting... Uh, yeah, definitely. I think it's probably just worth no- notice- noting as well that you can get hypotension and altered mental status only from um, cholecystitis if you start to get systemic sepsis which can be a complication of cholecystitis. We had a, um, a guy in the ED out at Kingaroy way back when who came in the morning when I started um, my like day there and he came in just with like cholecystitis. Like he was pretty sick, um, had a positive Murphy sign that I got to do, which was, yeah, pretty cool. Um, and then about like four hours later, he was just like fully septic, you know, drifting in and out of consciousness, very sick, blood pressure down to like 90 on 40, having to be resussed and flown down to Brisbane. So, Yeah, wow. Yeah. That's crazy. definitely happen. But yeah, anyways, what investigations are we going to do if we think someone's a bit sus and might have cholecystitis? 
Well, we want to run some lab tests, of course, after we've done our thorough history and examination with possibly a positive Murphy sign. Um, so we'll start with our bloods and we'll run a full blood count with differentials and we expect to see our white blood cells up, um, particularly our neutrophils as we have an acute infection. Um, on our ELFTs, we would expect more of the ALP to be significantly up. Um, Cholestatic picture. Exactly, yep. So that ALP, GGT rather than that AST, ALT. Um, and if we start to get more of a cholidocolithiasis, we might expect things like amylase and lipase to be going up, which suggests a bit of pancreatic involvement. Um, and of course, we'd run our beta HCG, singing back to our differentials, ruling out that ectopic pregnancy, um, and also any pregnancy if, if we give uh, antibiotics later on. Lipase is always better than amylase for pancreatitis. Good to know. So, getting back to the case, um, we did all those labs because we're brilliant. and We found that the LFTs, amylase, and lipase were normal. Beta HCG was not elevated, and the white blood cell count was elevated with a lot of newts. <laughs> so, what does that mean? We got a cute... Um, Cholecystitis. Cholecystitis. <laughs> And do we want to go through why it's a cholecystitis and maybe not a cholangitis yet? So I think that's just because, you know, her LFTs aren't up the fuck yet, basically. Yeah, so we don't have that cholestatic uh, pattern yet. Um, and we have no pancreatic involvement. Yeah, um, it's just an acute inflammation. She probably has a fever. We haven't actually confirmed that with the vitals yet. Um, but it's definitely more fitting the picture Oops, of a... That's um, my bad. They just came back. She has a fever. <laughs> oh, yes. Okay. The vitals have just returned. Breaking news. And she has a fever. So, yeah, definitely a, a acute cholecystitis. Yeah. I did really just leave it with, like, the patient saying it's a bit warm. And then we've just assumed she's in a fever the whole time. Do test Do test if, some, if someone says a bit warm if they have a fever. <laughs> so Probably should check that anyway, actually. On that note, do we need to do imaging now? Or is it enough to leave it there? Nah, we've got to do some imaging. We've got to work out exactly what the problem is. We don't know if it's a stone also. Like, we, we've so far just kind of shown that, like, it's probably the gallbladder. Like, we've ruled out a lot of other things. Um, so, we've got to do imaging. And what form of imaging do we do? Well, we would start with an ultrasound scan. So, um, X-ray will typically pick up only the black stones that Michael was mentioning before, so those caused by hemolysis, and we'll miss out the radiolucent uh, cholesterol stones and the radiolucent brown um, infection stones. So ultrasound is much better at picking those up. Um, but sometimes they... cholesterol stones radioopaque? No, their cholesterol stones are radiolucent, aren't they? Wait. Yes. Yeah, radiolucent. Yep, so cholesterol radiolucent stones, means yeah. you can't see it on okay, x-ray yeah, and radioopaque you can. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and obviously it's very important because cholesterol stones make up the majority of gallstones. So you don't want to miss the cholesterol stones. So you've got to do ultrasound to address that. Um, if we don't actually work out what's going on from the ultrasound though, what scan could we do? A HEDA scan. Yep. I don't actually know what that is, but... <laughs> Um, you kind of like put this, and this is super general, you just put like a radioactive tracer in it and you kind of see where it stops and that's in the biliary tree and then you can see if there's like, that's where the blockage is, I guess. Yeah. So it's a little bit better if it's more like an obstruction in the common bile duct. That's something that ultrasounds often miss. 
um oh. that's how i remember it is if you know your ultrasound can't find it maybe the maybe the stone is hiding a hider scan <laughs> um yeah also i forgot to mention how do we actually what are the things you would see on ultrasound ali is laughing so much do you well, just see the stones or <laughs> yeah you see the stone or like a dilated you duct see, where it is yeah yeah, yeah. Exactly. And you might also see like a thickened gallbladder wall um, and a bit of uh, pericholecystic fluid, uh, other things. But obviously you'll see the stoke. <laughs> awesome. So we do ultrasound and then are there any other imaging things we could potentially order? Um, I was thinking maybe a chest x-ray. We had pneumonia on our differential list before, so let's rule that out. Yeah. yeah could do an ECG as well. Yeah. Nice they're imaging. Both, they're both inexpensive. Yeah, for sure. And ECG would be ruling out that MI. Um, and I guess if we're more worried about other things, so maybe if we still had pancreatitis on our list of things, we could do maybe a CT scan or maybe an MRI or something. But that's not really what we're looking at too much today. So, yeah. Um, all right. So in summary for the diagnostics, we're going to do a white blood cell with differentials. We're doing LFTs. We're doing amylase and lipase and beta HCG. And then also an ultrasound. Awesome. So we did those things and we found a beautiful, beautiful gallstone um, in the cystic duct for our good old faith. So what are we going to do now? Take care of her. Do some magic doctoring. Magic doctoring. Yeah, that's what we're here to do. All right. Thanks, guys, for listening. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's all you need to know, guys. Just make the patient better. No, we'll whip out the crystals and do some healing, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like Michael's saying this because the one of the main things is supportive care, which kind of sounds like you're just going to hold their hand and, like, tell them it's going to be okay. <laughs> we'll do some psychodynamic therapy for them. <laughs> um, but, yeah, supportive care consists of IV hydration, IV analgesics, like NSAIDs. We um, will do... Also make them nil by mouth, so no eating and also no drinking in preparation for potentially surgery. Um, and then you'll observe them for about 24 hours. You can also consider doing IV antibiotics. Um, this is often seen as like more preventative in case they're progressing worse um, or in preparation for like surgery. But yeah, um, I guess... If you're thinking about antibiotics, just quickly mention that like the most common ones that typically cause cholecystitis are E. coli, enterococcus, Klebsiella, and Enterobacter are typically common. So you'd probably pick antibiotics that cover those. So maybe something like ceftriaxone or metronidazole. But yeah. Nice. Um, And then, so we, if we're observing someone for 24 hours and say they get a whole heap worse, what might we be doing? We take them to theatre. Say if they get better. We can the out. That is. Say if they get better, what do we do? Well, we don't need to take it out, but if they want it out. Yeah. So maybe an elective procedure scheduled later down the line. That's called cholecystectomy, by the way, the removal of the gallbladder. Awesome. Um, so we'll jump over to Faith now. And so we've observed her um, and her pain and fever reduces over the next two days. Um, and you have a chat to her and she agrees to an elective cholecystectomy in a few weeks. So how often do we think it is that the case would resolve like faith or maybe progress to com- complications? I don't know. I actually really don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, most of the time it's quite relaxed and, it, you know, over two to three days, um, the pain will go away and they'll resolve. 
Um, often people still will go get an elective cholecystectomy though. And then around like 10%-ish um, can have complications. Mm. All right. Um, so I guess in su- summary, the treatment is supportive and cholecystectomy in whatever form, elective or urgent if it gets worse. But what about the complications? There's a lot of things that could be complications, but shall we go through quickly rapid fire a couple of them? I think a big one's perfing, perforation. If you just, if you imagine we're talking about a gallbladder that's kind of swelling up and really getting, you know, nasty. Obviously, like if you blow up a balloon too much, it can pop and then you get all of the contents of a nasty, gross, infected gallbladder spreading out into your peritoneum, getting peritonitis or forming a pericholecystic abscess. Mm. Yeah. And I think another one, especially if it lasts for a bit longer, um, you've got to consider the ischemia, which can lead to a sort of a gangrenous cholecystitis. Um, and you've got to be careful of the gallbladder wall necrosing. And then again, like Michael, nicely abbreviated to perfing, um, you can get <laughs> gallbladder perforation. Yeah. So those two are the two main ones. That's good. Um, so gangrenous cholecystitis and perforation are the main things. Some other random ones we can think about is potentially emphysematous cholecystitis. So this is where you get a secondary infection of the gallbladder wall with gas-forming organisms. And these people often develop complications like the two main complications, I guess, gangrene and perforation. That one happens mainly in diabetics. Um, you can also get the uh, cholecystoenteric fistula, mm-hmm. which you don't even need to know what it is. As long as you know the word, your G, is <laughs> cholecyst is gallbladder, enteric is bowel, cholecystoenteric fistula is just a connection between the bowel and the gallbladder. Mainly to the duodenum. And you've got to be careful if the stone's big enough or there's enough stones, um, you can actually block the duodenum and it can become a much worse problem. That's gallstone ileus, right? That is. Mm, that brings no. us to our next one. Almost, almost. almost. It wouldn't almost. block the duodenum, though. Oh, you've got to go ileus yeah. is further down. Mm. So duodenum's kind of big. So you've got to go um, gallstone ileus. So you, the little stone from the gallbladder travels through that great fistula that's been created because of all this inflammation and pressure that's going on. Travels into the um, small duodenum, small bowel, and travels around. And then at some point... Um, in like the terminal ileum, typically it will get stuck because this is where it's quite narrow. Um, and also normally the stone has to be big, like 2.5 centimetres. Oh, another side point we haven't said throughout this is we've throughout the whole time said gallstone. Often people have multiple stones. It's normally not just one stone blocking the duct. It's a lot. So just keep that in mind. But yeah, anyway, back to gallstone ileus. So we have this gallstone that's usually greater than 2.5 centimetres. It gets trapped in the terminal ileum. Um, and then, yeah, that's gallstone ileus, I guess, creates an obstruction. And last complication, as all acute infections, it can progress to a chronic infection. So we've got chronic cholecystitis. Um, and as the name suggests, you've got the classic chronic inflammatory cells um, and they'll sort of form this porcelain gallbladder where the wall becomes thick and gross. <laughs> what do you mean gross? Porcelain, so shiny, so beautiful. <laughs> Um, okay awesome um so we'll go through a quick summary then um let's say say faith i haven't written this down faith 
goes in for her elective cholecystectomy weeks later and she's like, wow, I've never felt better. I no longer get pain after meals. How great. Aaron was the surgeon and he got to bill her privately, so he's very happy Mm -hmm. as well. (laughs) Always bulk bill. Yeah. She had um, faith in Aaron. Um, (laughs) I don't like myself. (laughs) 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 Okay. Um, So we'll summarize real quick. Cholecystitis is inflammation of the gallbladder, and you're most commonly getting that from a stone or a cholelithiasis. Um, this will cause right upper quadrant pain and fever, amongst other symptoms. Little tip for exams, radiation to the scapula. Um, anyone you suspect of cholecystitis, you've got to order labs for inflammatory markers with differentials. You need to rule out potentially an ectopic with beta-HCG, look at the pancreas with lipase and amylase, and do LFTs for the liver. You've got to do an ultrasound to see that stone, and then overall treatment is supportive, and you might do a cholecystectomy. All right. So thank you guys for listening. Any other comments? Thank you to our wonderful editor, Ali, for putting up with my shit. (laughs) And thank you to our audience. We appreciate you guys. Thanks for listening, guys. (laughs) All right. See you next time. Bye. (laughs) Bye.